Welcome to Gigami, the podcast for up-and-coming musicians who are serious about turning their talent into a career. I'm Dave Holly. I've toiled in the trenches of the music industry, man and boy, for more than 30 years. Each week I talk to an artist or exec about their experience of how the industry really works and what you can do to give yourself the best chance of breaking into it, build a good life and make a good living while creating the fantastic music you were put on earth to create. If you have any questions or just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. I will always reply. Until then, on with the show. Today's episode is a bit unusual and a bit special. It's a conversation with the legendary American recording engineer and record producer Al Schmidt. Al began hanging around record studios in the 1930s and continued working until the 2020s. Over 80 years, a phenomenal life. The word legend is bandied about, but Al is a legend. He recorded or mixed 150 gold and platinum albums. He won 22 Grammys, more than any other engineer or mixer. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. One of his first jobs was working with Duke Ellington, but he's also worked with Quincy Jones, Frank Sinatra, Paul McCartney, Steely Dan, Sam Cooke, Elvis Presley, Ray Charles, Madonna, Michael Jackson. He was also a wonderful man, generous with others in the industry, kind to animals, a good friend. Al sadly passed away in 2021 after recording this conversation, but I offer this episode as a small tribute to him, to his life and career. When people look at a resume like yours, it can, it can look sort of inevitable as though, as though, you know, success was your birthright. But, but you came from quite a poor background, didn't you? Yeah. What was life like when you were, were growing up? Well, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn and uh, kind of a tenement area of Brooklyn. And uh, uh, yeah, we were extremely poor. My father's brother, his name was Harry Smith. He changed it from Schmidt to Smith because of the, uh, you know, during the war and leading up to the war, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment. And uh, so he changed it to Smith. So he was Harry Smith. And um, he had his recording studio in New York. It was the first independent recording studio. And on every once in a while, on a Saturday, my father would bring me over to the studio to see Harry. Harry was my uncle, but he didn't have any children. And he was also my godfather. So I would watch him record, you know, and he'd have, you know, all the musicians out there, one microphone, and they'd have the guys moving back and forth, you know, and move, you know, these guys have to move closer. And, as you know, they'd balance that way, you know, balance them in the room. Oh, you'd actually have to move people to get them louder and quieter. Right. Right, exactly. Also, I had to make them take their shoes off because you could hear the foot tapping. So, uh, yeah. But I was always fascinated by it as a young child. So uh, when I got to be about nine, my mom let me go over to see my uncle on the weekend. I'd go over on a Saturday and I'd spend Saturday night with him at his apartment on Riverside Drive. And then um, Sunday, you know, back at the studio. And, and I got to meet everybody, Orson Welles and Bing Crosby. Uh, he re- my uncle was the re- did the first recording ever of Frank Sinatra. 
And that's in one of the Sinatra books. So anyway, so I was just fascinated. He always had a lot of money. He always dressed well. He knew everybody. He took me to all the good restaurants. And we would go out to bars, and I'd sit on a bar stool and have a sarsaparilla. Well, age nine and ten, you'd be in the bars of, of Manhattan. Yeah, they let you do that back in those days. They, they don't anymore, but back then, yeah, they would. <laughs> That's called the good old days. So I'd have a sarsaparilla, and they'd put a cherry in it for me. My father back then was making $17 a week. And when I would leave on Sunday leave my uncles on Sunday to get back on the subway, he always gave me a $20 bill. Wow. And I would give that to my mother. Well, he knew that my father wouldn't take a handout, but he knew this is his way he could help without my father getting mad or angry about it, you know, saying he didn't need any help. My father was a pretty proud man. So anyway, so that, and then that would help out the family. Anyway, so it was just... Meeting everybody and, you know, Bing Crosby, the Andrews sisters, Kate Smith. I mean, they they were all come by the studio to see Harry or to pick up things or, or whatever. And I did that until I was about 13. And then uh, then I got hooked up with a gang in Brooklyn and then I stopped going. So, so how did you then break into the recording industry? Was that with your Uncle Harry or, or, or was that different? I was getting in a lot of trouble with this gang. So on my 17th birthday, I enlisted in the Navy uh, because I had to get away. Otherwise, I was going to wind up in jail. You know, some of my friends are already in jail. So I enlisted in the Navy, spent three years in the Navy, and I got out. And I was home for about two weeks. And my uncle called me on the phone and said, a friend of his had a recording studio, and they were looking for an apprentice, you know, someone to break in, and um, would I be interested? And I said, oh, you bet. He said, okay. So we set up the, the appointment, and I went over, and I got the job. And uh, little did I know that, that the guy that owned the studio was my uncle's best friend. <laughs> so so that was cool. So anyway, so then I, um, I, I get there Monday morning at 9 o'clock, first day, and he, my, the owner, takes me and introduced me to the crew there. And there were two guys. One was a German engineer uh, who wore a monocle, believe it or not. And the other guy was Tom Dowd, who at that time was about 26 years old. And I was 19. So, um, yeah, I was, it was in March, March 21st. I'll never forget that day. And because my birthday, I was going to be 21 in April. Tommy and I hit it off. We became, not only I became, it followed him around. He bought me a notebook, you know, and told me to uh, draw diagrams of sessions and, and what microphones uh, are you, we used and so forth. And I did that with the book, and I, and I kept uh, every session, you know, little notes on it. So um, and that was my start. That's how I got started. Fantastic. I'm really interested because, you know, you met um, all these famous people with Harry and then you go on to record so many famous people. You also mention in your book that, you know, you were nervous at, at, at different points in your career. Were you nervous because of the, 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 um, the stars you were working with? Or was it a technique? Is it because of the, you, it was doing things that were technically complicated? 
Well, there wasn't anything that was complicated. It's just things I hadn't done before. Like, you know, I, I, in the book, I, I tell a story about my first Saturday. They they allowed me to come in on Saturday by myself after three months and, you know, working with Tommy. And, and, and I would do Saturday was what they called demo day. And people would come in and do a little piano and, and, and uh, happy birthday to uh, to their daughter or something, and I would cut a little acetate and give it to them, and they gave me $15, and, and that was it. And I had three people that day, and one guy at 10, and he came in and did the happy birthday, another guy at 12 who wrote a song and played a song on guitar and sang the song, and I cut that on, uh, on an acetate, gave it to him. And then at, at uh, 2 o'clock, I had uh, Mr. Mercer, and I'm waiting for Mr. Mercer. And I was waited by the elevators, so so I could direct everybody to the to the studio. So the elevator doors opened up, and uh, all these musicians started coming out. And they wanted to know where the studio was, and I said, "Well, the studio's right there and there, but uh, there's a mistake. What is this? No, Mercer Records, Mercer Ellington, Duke Ellington's son. Uh, yeah, we're cutting a, a big band today." I said, oh, no, no, that's a big mistake. So I tried to call Tommy. You know, we didn't have cell phones in those days. Um, so there, I couldn't reach Tommy. I couldn't reach my boss. I didn't know what to do. So we only had eight inputs on the board. And I, I got my book, and I saw a big band set up that Tommy had done. And uh, so I went out and put the mics up and tried to get everybody situated and then went back into the control room. And I was scared to death. I had never done anything like that. And Duke Ellington walks in. <laughs> and, you know, and I was a bebopper and a jazzer when I was a kid. So, you know, all some of these guys were, you know, Billy Strayhorn and, and people. Yeah. They, these were my idols, you know. I looked up to, these were like Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio, you know, to me, you know. Because uh, I was just, I was total jazz freak and big bands. Um, my first record I ever bought was the Jimmy Lunsford big band album. So, uh, big band single. So anyway, so, um, Duke Ellington walks in and I, I went over to her and I said, Mr. Ellington, there's a big mistake here. I, I'm really not qualified to do this. They thought this was just going to be a little demo thing and, and, uh, and I'm just not qualified and I can't reach anybody. And he looked out and he said, well, the musicians are, are out there. They're getting settled and tuning up. The setup looks fine. He said, we'll do it. And I said, oh, boy, I've never done anything. And he said, don't worry, son, we'll get through this. And he sat right next to me and helped me out, you know, with a little more of this, a little more of that, a little more of this, until we finally got, you know, some semblance of a balance. And, uh, and that was it. We cut four sides in three hours. And that was it. And when they walked out, I, I, I almost wet myself. <laughs> I was so, I mean, I was just, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And so I went home Saturday night. I went home and I, I, I wound up in the bar with my friends. And I was telling them, guess what I did today? I recorded Duke Ellington. <laughs> you know, it was like, holy smoke. And it was just, everybody wanted to know what he looked like and all this other stuff. Um, Anyway, so it was it was a big thrill. And then uh, about three weeks later, the same thing on a Saturday, 
and I'm, uh, I finish up my demo. I think it was the last one was like one o'clock. And I get a call from Herb Abramson, one of the owners of Atlantic Records. And he said, Al, is the studio busy this afternoon? I said, no. He said, great, I'm coming over with a group. We're going to cut. I got a hit song here. I said, okay. So he come, brings the, the group over, the Clovers. And uh, so I cut two sides with them, Skylark and a, and a song, Don't You Know I Love You. And uh, Don't You Know I Love You became a big hit it was a race record, they called them back in those days. You know, it was like an R&B thing. And uh, and it became a big hit on uh, on, on R&B radio or race record. Uh, so now I had the big band uh, that I recorded, which made me a little bit cocky. And now I have a hit record, which made me even a little more cocky. So, so I was starting to feel my oats a little bit. But... Tommy always made sure he put me in his place. You know, uh, Les Paul was my uncle's best friend. So he was like my, I knew from since I was a little kid, I called him Uncle Les. And he would always tease me about it all the time. And don't get too cocky now, Schmitty, he called me. And he would always mess up my hair. Everybody called me Schmitty back in those days. So, because Les Paul is just one of those legendary figures in the history of recorded music, isn't he? he? He was so important for multi-tracking and all sorts of things, stereo. Absolutely, and one of the nicest people you ever want to meet in your life. I just love that man. He he treated me so nicely, and and every time I'd see him, when I was oh, I was getting an award, the Tech Award in New York one year, and I had my wife there. And they gave out the Les Paul Award and all that. So Les was sitting next to me at the table, and Tommy Dowd was there, and and my wife, and and uh, and two of my kids. So I said to Les, Les, I want to introduce you to my wife. This is my wife Lisa. And he looked at Lisa, and he took her hand, and he looked at her, and he said, "Oh, Lisa, you are so much prettier than the woman he was with last night." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of guy he was. Yeah, you know, she she, she broke up laughing, you know, because she, she knew I was with her. But the point was that this is the kind of guy he was. And he was just, I just loved that man. He was he was really a true uncle to me and uh, and always treated me, you know. He'd be walking up on stage and he'd see me sitting at a table and he'd, hey, Al, how you doing, bud? You know, he always, that was great. I, I, I had the privilege of meeting him, um, you know, when I used to come over and work at Capitol Studios. Right. Um, I, 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 he came in a couple of times in there. I know, yeah. Hand and, yeah, he was tr- very, very friendly to me. Yeah. What, what I love is, is the story about um, Mercer Ellington and, and, and the Clovers is you kind of jumped in and had a go. I think you were forced to do it slightly by circumstances. Were, were, there, were there any occasions where you jumped in and had a go and it didn't work? There were sessions that didn't come out exactly the way I wanted them to. Uh, but, you know, some of it might have been some of it my fault, some of it uh, the musicians, you know, whatever. But I never had any what you would call failures or, or anything where we just gave up. The, the great thing about the, in those days, you know, we had eight inputs. So you could only put eight microphones out there. So, you know, changing a mic quickly or moving them around, you know, it wasn't like today where we got, you know, 40 microphones in the studio at the same time. Back then, everything was mono, 
even before two track, it was mono, and we didn't even have a tape machine. Everything we did was on sixteen inch transcriptions discs. So the transcription discs were sixteen inch. You know, people know about the old forty uh, fives and then the twelve inch thirty threes, but you're talking about a sixteen inch disc. Where you? you you cut onto those? Well, you, we would cut at thirty three and a third, and you could cut two or three takes on one side. And then you could flip it over and cut two or three takes on on the other side. And then when we came time for mastering to get it down to 78, because we were cutting at 33 and a third, we we had a turntable and we would play that back and cut from the turntable to the uh, to the head um, uh, on the machine or the uh, lathe. Um, and we would do it at 78, and that's what went out to the pressing plants. Ah, that's what I was trying to work out when I saw in your book, 16-inch, how did the 16-inch things get down onto 12-inch or 10-inch or 7-inch, whatever it was, and that's there was an intermediary stage of cutting then to a master, yeah. That's exactly how it did. And, you know, it's funny, we had two turntables, uh, playbacks in the control room, and they each had a fader on them. And Tommy and I would try editing. He would he would have take five queued up, and I would have take seven queued up, and then he he would uh, play his, and then at a certain point he would fade out and I'd fade in, uh, so that we would go from one transcription to the other and we tried to do editing that way all the time and i think we got it to work maybe once you know <laughs> that, i mean it's so, you've got to be so accurate haven't you in in, in to, to make that work you know tommy yeah. was a genius and um uh and we tried everything i i was the luckiest guy in the world to have him as my mentor he was brilliant you know he he worked on the uh the atom bomb, uh, you know, the guy was just unbelievable. And and he was, you know, six years older than me. And we just became real good friends. So we'd, we'd go to hockey games together and we'd go out to the bar and have a few drinks after work sometimes. So we got to be really close and and we stayed close until he passed. So, so you, you said he worked on the atom bomb. That, that, he was one of the physicists, was he, on the, on the Manhattan Project? On the Manhattan Project, exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then he became a recording engineer afterwards. Yes. Who, who, who did he work with? Oh, he did. Oh, Aretha Franklin and all the big Atlantic records, Ray Charles. He was Atlantic. That's that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he went to work, finally went to work for Atlantic after, you know, um, Apex, where we worked together, folded. And uh, the, the the guy that owned it was a, an alcoholic and he, he drank up everything and it wound up closing. So Tommy went to another studio, and I went to a place called NOLA Studios, which was a rehearsal studio, but also they had a little recording studio. So I was there for almost a year when Tommy called me and said, hey, they got an opening here, and I recommended you for it. Get your ass over here and and, uh, apply for this job because you're going to get it. I went over there. I got the job. And my salary doubled. That's always, that's always a nice feeling. <laughs> yes, it was an incredible feeling. I had just gotten married, you know, and I had a child on the way. Uh, so, yeah, it was really a blessing. So, so then Tommy and I, we had only spent maybe nine months apart from one another. We were back together again. Yeah, it was, it was great for me. 
and a great learning experience because the studios that I went to were big enough for orchestras. And, uh, you know, you, so I started, there was another engineer by the name of Bob Doherty who was doing all the big orchestra dates. So he took me under his wing and started uh, showing me how to record orchestras and things. He put me on my first big orchestra date. He told me his son had something to do with school, so I would have to do it. I said, no, 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 I can't. I'm, I'm not ready yet. And he said, Al, why? I said, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm afraid of French horns. <laughs> and, and, and he said, French horns don't bite. And he told me how to, you know, just how to do it, how to take the reflection off a riser from behind. And, and so that was it. My first big orchestra date. I did, and uh, because of him, and he pushed me into it, and it came out great, and uh, and then I was able to do that too. So, and then that was even more fun, you know. You know, I love music all my life. I collected records. I my uncle had bought me a a little portable phonograph when I was like twelve, thirteen. And I would go to the schoolyard and we would play records and dance and, you know, Woody Herman and, and uh, all the great old jazz players and, and stuff. And so here I am working with all these people and seeing all my idols come in the studio. And, and you know, it's like, what? You know, Cam Calloway, you know, people like that. I thought, my God, you know, yeah, it was just beyond me. Did you work with Charlie Parker? Yes. I did. And my uncle did all those great Charlie Parker records. My uncle Harry with Charlie and uh, Miles. Wow. Oh, they're legendary. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, when I was, when I was young and I'd go over there and all I'd, he, my uncle, I had to go in and, and pick up all the roaches from all the, the joints and, and put them in a, a can and get rid of them. You know, so he, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had no idea what, what they were. I mean, I, Sometimes I did, but I was really young. Funny smelling cigarettes. Yeah. Were, were you ever intimidated by any of these heroes that you met? No, no. You know, I think meeting them when I was young, you know, like meeting Orson Welles, I was nine years old. You know, meeting some of the great jazz musicians and and with Les and my uncle and uh, I, you know, they were just nice people to me. So so I never got intimidated uh, by them. You know, I was in awe of some of them in the sense that these were like my heroes, but they were always friendly and nice. Did you feel you learned anything from them that, that might be useful for young musicians to know these days? Oh, wow. Well, yeah, they're, you know, they would come in. I mean, they would just work up things. They would practice all the time. I mean, these guys... They never stopped learning, you know? It was it's amazing to watch them, you know, whether it was a saxophone player or whatever, go for different things that, that no one had ever done before, you know, and keep trying and keep... And they just never seemed to give up. That was one thing I learned from them is, boy, you know, you you got to keep trying because sooner or later you're going to get it. And, and uh, that's what these... Guys, that's what I learned. From how, how were they around people like you and 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 maybe people from the record companies? And were, were they were they always good, or did they were they sometimes hostile, or how, how did they conduct themselves? Pretty much good. But I remember one one uh, record company. Uh, the guy would the producer would come, and each musician back then was they got fifteen dollars for three hours, each guy. 
Yeah. And there'd be like six guys out there or whatever. And he'd have the cash, and they paid him in cash. And he'd have the cash there, and a, and right next to the cash was a thirty-two automatic pistol. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody would touch the cash. And then at the end of the day, they'd give each guy 15 bucks and they would leave. I, I remember being at Capitol Studios with um, Paula, Paula Salvatore. Right. And... and um... Uh, a, a fairly well-known rap artist came in, and two or three of their of his entourage had guns with them, and they put the guns on them. They were uh, mastering a record there, and and I was in Paula's office, and she got a phone call from whoever was mastering it, saying, "Could you just pop in here for a moment?" Uh, and 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 Paula came in and then came out again, and she, and she said, "Oh my God." There are guns all over the desk. <laughs> and um, oh. I, I did the only honourable thing. I, I pushed Paula in to deal with the situation rather than me. <laughs> and she was brilliant at it. Yeah, they all moved the guns. They were just trying to create I know, an atmosphere, of I think. course. You, you've, you've mentioned mentors. I guess Harry and Tom Dowd and the guy, I've, I've forgotten the name of the guy who put you into the, the orchestra session. How, how important have, have mentors been to you in your career? Well, extremely important. Uh, you know, when you see somebody that, you know, they have techniques that they use or or they, they, they have a regimen that they, and they stick to that, you know, that inspired me uh, to want to be the same way, you know. I was always early for my dates. I always had the mics set up and checked out so that yeah, I knew each mic was working, you know, where it should be placed and whatever. But I, I was always ready. So when the musicians came in, all I had to do was open faders and get balances. Uh, everything was all set up, ready to go. And, and were, you taught, were you taught that by Tom or one of the other guys? Yeah, yeah, Tommy and I, uh, Tommy taught me a lot of that, uh, doing that. And then, you know, we, we did our first live echo chamber um, when I went to the studio, the second time I went to work with Tommy, uh, it was a place called Fulton Recording Studio. And it was a little room off the control room. So we took that room, we put a speaker in and a microphone, and we shellacked. We came in on a Saturday and we shellacked that room. We put like nine coats of shellac on the room. And that was our live echo chamber. So you, you, you pump the sound into the room and it bounces off the walls, then you record it coming back out, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we tried to not get it so that it was like a slap, you know? It was more like cavernous. Yeah, we, we did all kinds of stuff. The day I started was March 21st, 1950. Now, that's 70 yeah. years ago. I've been doing this for 70 years, and I'm still working. Do you have a favourite recording you've made? What's your favorite? Oh, some of my, oh, some of the Mancini records, uh, certainly the Sinatra record, uh, the duets, uh, Unforgettable, Natalie Cole, another one of my favorites. Uh, working with Paul McCartney was was that was incredible. That was a, one of one of my special times in my career. He was the sweetest, nicest guy in the world and we just became friends and we would laugh and tell jokes and I was over at Abbey Road uh, doing strings with him and uh, I'm, I was standing in the hall and I was on the cell phone and he came out and he stood in front of me and put, pulled the phone away and I said, it's my daughter, it's her birthday. He took the phone, sang happy birthday to her and then gave me the phone back. 
And my daughter said, oh, my God, nobody will believe this. <laughs> she said, I can, I can tell my friends, but nobody's going to believe this. That That's the kind of guy he was, you know. He he was just a, he was the sweetest, nicest guy, one of the nicest people I've ever worked with. And somebody with his his success, you know, he's just so down to earth. And he's a wonderful human. But that's another record. That was a special time. I don't know if that's my all-time favorite record, but working with him is one of my favorite things ever. You know, I did uh, a great record with Sammy Davis Jr. That, that What Kind of Fool I Am. It was great. Uh, you know, all the Toto for Rosanna and Africa and all of those. And Steely Dan working on... Asia. Yeah, I mixed uh, Peg and uh, Deacon Blues on that record. That was another fun record. It was a difficult record to mix because uh, we didn't have any uh, automated faders in those days. So every mix was like a, a performance. And, you know, you'd have four guys sitting at the board, you know, and I'd have uh, Walter doing one thing and Donald doing something else, and I was doing this mix, and then Gary Gary Katz was adding echo to certain spots. So, you know, and each each time we do it, somebody would screw up, and we'd have to do it again. It took us about 12 <laughs> hours to do Peg, but we finally got it, and uh, and that was it. But, yeah, each, each take was like a performance, and we all had to do our little thing, and if someone screwed up, we had to do it over. But in, in your book, you, you, you say um, you don't think you've ever... In fact, this is a quote. I don't think I've ever made a record I was 100% happy with. How did you get comfortable with that, get over the need to make it perfect? At the time, I would think I had it. You know, I had Oh, yeah, that's it. I got it. Damn, that's, that's, that's it. And the record would come out. But I'd hear the record a year later... And I'd say, oh, man, why did I do that? Why, why didn't I bring that up? You know, I could find fault with every record I ever made when I listen back, even though at the time I'd say, oh, that's, that's great. But when I listen back, I think, God, I should have. Why didn't I do that? I criticize myself all the time. And my wife will laugh because uh, we'll be in a restaurant and something will come on, and I'll say something about it. And she'd say, you're the only person in this room that's even listening to this music, and you can find fault with it. You know? <laughs> I guess one of the things might, might have been that, you know, originally in the recording studios, you used to work three-hour sessions, didn't you? So you had to get four records out in three, four sides out in three. In th and then even, even, you know, in the 60s when it opened up and you had longer sessions... You had a budget, so that you had to work quite quickly to deliver a record. So I, I guess that forced you to be happy and, and move on, move on to the next project. Yeah, yeah, at, at times. But, you know, I never, I, I don't think I ever said, well, that's good enough. I don't think that ever, you know, I, I, I worked hard. And sometimes guys would say, hey, no, that's great, Al. I, I said, no, I, I can do it better. And, okay, go ahead. And I, I would... Do what I, you know, fix the little things that I thought I could, I could do better, and and that's that's how I worked all the time. And you know, budget was really when when you worked at RCA on RCA artists, there was never really much of a budget problem because the studio time was all free. So so as much time as you spend it wasn't part of the budget. 
So it was only musicians and and whatever else, tape and lunch. You, know? you seem to be very much a team player. Would you, would you consider yourself a team player when it comes to recordings? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and who who else who else would be in your? Would you consider in your team? Oh wow! Well, musicians were always on my team because I always, you know, I would get to know the musicians, get to know their wives' names, get to know their kids. You know, I, you know, when they come in, I talk to them. I would always go out when I was setting up a big band, and I'd set up the mics in front of the saxophones. I'd always, be, I knew each guy's name, you know, and how are you? How's the kids? And that kind of stuff. And and you know, we we have hugs and stuff like that. I became really friendly with all the musicians, and I always made sure they were comfortable. You know, can you hear well? Can you, you know, because you got musicians who are comfortable. Uh, those are the guys that are going to play the best. You know, they're not worried about all this other stuff. They're getting good sound in their ears, you know, in their earphones. Uh, so the balances are good. You know, they're getting great sound on their instrument. So that makes them happy. Uh, yeah, it's you know you create a good environment so when people walk in the studio, there's a smile on you know okay we're gonna we're gonna have a good time today, and uh, I would love that. That was always and giving guys hugs when they come in and that kind of stuff. I always tell engineers your best friend in the world is the musician in the studio. You keep him happy and you're gonna be happy. I was a producer for eight years at RCA and produced, you know, all the Jefferson Aeroplane stuff and all kinds of great records at RCA, a lot of jazz uh, albums. As an engineer, I also felt that I was part producer and I would make suggestions. Sometimes I get a producer who didn't know what the hell he was doing and how he got in there, nobody knows. But I would make suggestions or I would talk to the musicians and say, listen guys, we're on the honor system here. If you make a mistake, hold up your hand because this guy isn't going to hear it and, um, and so we can fix it. Uh, and so that kind of stuff. I, but, you know, I was always a, a team player you know, it's always about the team, about me and my assistant, the producer, the musicians, the artist. Always make sure the artist was comfortable. He had the right mic. Could he hear well or he hear well? Uh, that kind of stuff. You know, it's just, yeah, it's it's not any one person to, can take credit, credit for making a record, you know. Bass players, when they come in, always have a smile on their face when they see me because that's my favorite instrument. And and I I, I always got a great sound on uh, upright bass. So and bass players love that all the time. And it's it's not an easy instrument to record. Piano also is is kind of a difficult instrument to record, and and one of the more difficult, I believe, to get a really great sound on. So you know, knowing where to place the mics, knowing who the piano player was. Uh, how he plays, you know, what you have to watch out for, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, I always try to, if I was doing something with Bill Evans, you know, I got a call, I'm going to do a Bill Evans album. I went out and I 
would buy Bill Evans records and listen to his albums. So I knew what he sounded like. I knew how he played. It was a lot of study. Um, you know, it, it just didn't start when we started in the studio. It started be- way before. Now, there's a, there's a quote in your book that said, your work doesn't start when the session does. It starts hours before thinking, thinking about the session. Yeah, sometimes days and weeks before, you know. Yeah, it's true. And uh, and it's important. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I have had some great assistance. Um, Bill Smith, when at, at my earlier times at Capitol, and, and now uh, Steve Jenowick. And uh, so we would get there early, check out microphones, make, you know, phasing everything, make sure all the echoes were right, make sure everything was clean. And then we could sit and have a cup of coffee. And so as the musicians would walk in, if the bass player came in, we'd get him set up and and get some sounds on him and get a quick bass sound. Same with the drummer, you know, when the drum technician would set up the drums, we'd get him to play a little bit so we could get a drum sound. So we were ahead of the game all the time. So we didn't have to take time out trying to get a drum sound while we're on the clock. We already got the drum sound. So, or, or the upright bass sound or the guitar sound, whatever. All about preparation. Absolutely. Yeah, the other thing I learned and... and uh, from Bob Doherty, he was the uh, guy that taught me big orchestra stuff. He always said to me, stand next to the conductor when they do their first rundown. So as as he's checking for notes and everything, and you hear the orchestra, so you hear what he's hearing. And then you go inside, and then it's your duty to capture that. And the other thing I learned, I think I, this is in the book too, you know, the conductor is is your best friend. So if you, if the French horns are too loud at bar 32, you could say to them, you know, at bar 32, could you hold the French horns down a little bit in the studio? Um, and he will do that for you. Or can you bring the celli up at bar 60 uh, a little bit more, you know, so I don't have to dig for them? And he would do that. So it was a team effort between me and, and the conductor who usually was the arranger. Yeah, and it, and it worked, and they, they, they liked that. They liked the fact that they could help me and I could help them. You mentioned in the book that 30 years ago you'd knocked the drink and the, the drugs on the head and really sorted yourself out. I met you 15 years ago, and you're one of the coolest, most together, healthy-looking, debonair, fun, chilled intelligent people. I mean, you, you really are, Al, and you, you've got a, a good soul. You know, I, I love listening to you. you. You talk about the animal work that you do. But but you said that you sort of, you change things. You, have, you, you, you said that you, and in fact, I've got a quote, you can't start your life over. You can't go back to the beginning, but you can start from now. I thought that was such a powerful thing today. So you can make the end better. Are you prepared to talk, just explain what turned you around and, and, and how the impact that's had? Well, you know, back, this was when everybody, you know, there was a time when everybody was doing cocaine and there was always a lot of weed. And then when I was working with the Jefferson Airplane, there was a lot of acid, LSD, and, you know, and so there were drugs all the time. And, and, you know, we would pass the bottle around and and with the cocaine. And, I mean, everybody was doing it. And it just got got crazy. And and it got to the point where uh, I started not liking myself. You know, I, I, I lived in a, a house 
where I would have to come down two little flights of steps to get to the living room. And it was a big mirror. And as I come down, I look in that mirror and man, I, I didn't see anybody in there that I liked that. I, you know, I said, what the fuck? What are you doing, Al? You know? So I had a poker game at my house one night and a bunch of celebrity guys in the music business were there. And, uh, and we did it at once a month at my house. And, uh, one guy would bring the cold cuts, and but we all had blow, and we all had weed, and, and, and we're playing poker. And, and I looked around the table at one point, and everybody was talking at the same time. And nobody was paying attention to anybody or whatever. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. So I had a friend of mine, a dear friend who was in AA, and I called him on the phone next day, next morning, and I said, where do you go to meetings? I'd, I'd like to go to a meeting and just check this out. Uh, and he said, don't worry, I'll, I'll come and get you. He wanted to make sure that I got there. So he came and got me and took me to my first meeting. And coming January, that'll be 33 years ago. So I'm going to have 33 years of sobriety. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it is fantastic. And after three years of sobriety, I met my wife, and it was the most beautiful thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I'm, I, you know, in my whole life, it changed my whole life, my whole, my whole perspective on things. And I understood the drug problems because I saw how many, you know, I don't know how many houses I snorted up my nose or I, or I gave away in divorces and things. Uh, but it was all because of the drugs. And all I know is that I couldn't look myself in the mirror and, and say, now I like that guy. And once I got sober, and especially when I met my wife, who just bought me a beautiful cup of coffee, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, especially when I met my wife, I, uh, you know, it just, it, it just changed my whole perspective on, on everything. I always loved animals, but I never got into it where, you know, I donated and, and rescued and, and those kind of things. And, you know, my, you know, I have a saying that, you know, please be kind to all living things. Um, that's so true. Uh, my wife and I and, and my one son went uh, many years ago to Africa on a safari, and it changed my life. I've been back now three times. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, at, watching wildlife in their natural habitat is it's there's nothing nothing like it when you realize how how they they respect one another and 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 what they do for one another you know the 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 zebras stay with the uh with the giraffes and they stay right behind the giraffes all the time because the giraffes can see way far away because of their height and see if any lions are around or what they have to watch out for. Two weeks ago, we just rescued another dog. Now we have four dogs and a cat. And uh, yeah, we just rescued a dog, got hit by a car, had to have half his teeth removed, really bad shape. And uh, now he's part of our family and and he's living the good life. You look fantastically well as well, you know, physically and mentally. But how, how do you keep yourself fit in both of those ways? Well, you know, um, my wife got me into, uh, my wife was doing Pilates 
and uh, and she was always in great shape. I, I bought her a Pilates machine, a reformer, one Christmas as a Christmas present. So then she got me into doing it a little bit, and then she talked me into going to classes. We've been doing Pilates now. I've been doing it for, I don't know, 18 years. Uh, she's been doing it forever. And... Uh, you know, it's good for your core. It keeps you young, keeps you trim. Uh, you're able to get out of a chair without a problem. Uh, and I do that, and I have a treadmill, and I have a, a sit-up machine. And so, I, you know, I, I try to stay in shape. You know, I, can, I don't do as much as I used to because I can't. You know, I just turned 90 in April. So, wow. so, uh, so yeah, I know. So, so just trying to... Uh, stay in shape something that i do that i i really evangelize around but i found that you've been doing it since i think 1964 um meditation do you do you still do that what what do you get from that oh it renews everything uh you know when i was at rca and i was doing eddie fisher in the afternoon from two to five and then the jefferson airplane eight o'clock at night this is when i was producing it at RCA. You know, I'd finish with Eddie Fisher and then I'd go up to my office and I would meditate for an hour. It, it would put me in good stead. It was like I got eight hours sleep and now I had to go down and work with the Jefferson airplane. They were totally nuts. You know, they had a nitrous oxide tank in the con- studio and uh, had, like, one guy did nothing but roll joints. Owsley would come by with acid. And, I mean, it was insane. So the meditation helped me get through that, really. And then I was fortunate enough to go with Paul Horn, who was the guy that got me into uh, TM. Uh, we went to India and we did an album at the Taj Mahal. And to go over there and uh, and meet the Maharaji and and learn uh, techniques uh, on meditation was was uh, you know amazing. And I I recommended in my book about meditating because I think it 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 there's a calmness to it that that you know you you it. it it kind of chases the fear away. It's the best thing I've ever done. Uh, that and quitting drinking. Uh, those are the two two best things I've done for myself physically. It's like all of a sudden you're going into a well and total darkness, total peace. Just, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. If you had to give one piece of advice to kids starting off in the industry today, what would it be? Don't give up. I mean, if this is your heart's desire, and follow your heart. You'll know when you're on the right track. It, it, it's something your body will tell you, your brain will tell you. If you want to do something that for your career and all, just stick with it. You never know when that little break is going to come or when that little switch is going to say, oh boy, I can do this. Just don't give up. That's what I tell people. You know, it used to be years ago, guys would want to know how to get a job at a recording studio when there were a lot of recording studios back then before the home thing. And I would say, take your resume and go around to every studio and leave it. And then a week later, go back and go around to every studio and do it again. And then a week later, do it again. Sooner or later, somebody's going to say, this guy's been here three weeks in a row. He really wants this job. God, you know, and, and they give you a, a, you get a break. Don't give up and just follow what your heart tells you to do. What, what are you most proud about in your career? I think the, the thing I'm most proud about is to watch guys that, that I've mentored uh, become successful and uh, become, you know, Grammy winners and, 
and, uh, and, and, and respected engineers and guys that have learned from me. And the biggest thrill I get is somebody calls me on the phone or somebody will text me or whatever. Hey, Al, I, I remember you told me back so-and-so how to, how to do this thing. And I just tried it and it came out so great. I just want to thank you so much for that. Just that little bit of advice changed everything I did that day. Just stuff like that, you know, it's, it's important to me. And I'd love to be known as a man who cared about all living things, too, and, and uh, you know, to take care of our, our wildlife. Would you be interested in an overview of how the music industry really works? If so, I've put together a mini-course called Learn How the Music Industry Works in just 25 minutes. And guess what? It explains how the industry works and takes about 25 minutes to listen to or read. If you'd find this helpful, go to gigami.co, that is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Click on the Start Here button. It will take you to a sign-up page. Please sign up and we will deliver the mini-course to you completely free of charge. Thank you to all of my guests who have taken the time to talk with me, and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Miles D, who has written and recorded the Gigami theme music. And as ever, if you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, if you have any questions, or if you just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. <laughs>